doing this morning? You doing all right? Good, good. You know, it's interesting. The last few weeks, like 1030 is just... Look at that profile. Oh, the... Uh... 1030 has just been slammed. And then this morning, like everybody showed up for the 9 a.m. And there's empty seats here. But there are people standing around in the back or sitting on the edges. If you want to come in, please feel free. We do have extra seats. And if you want to scoot in just a little bit, that's never a bad idea just to give everybody another opportunity. Or if not, that's fine too. Just ignore me. Most people do. It's all right. It's all right. Thanks for being here. Um, yeah, the Discipleship event was great. John and I had this great conversation for an hour, and we want you to go check it out because we want you to understand what it is that we mean when we say discipleship, what that looks like, and how we're going to continue to grow that ministry in a church that is this big. I mean, I was just talking to you like, hey, 1030, like that's a you know specific nomenclature for you because you always come at 10. That's like a different church. In a church that's this big, you have to find intentional and specific ways to grow your relationship with Christ. Um, because it's just a different kind of dynamic in a smaller church. And that's why we brought John on. That's why we're so excited for his ministry and his vision for this ministry. So please, please go check it out. Other things happening around the crosswalk world. Last week, we had a launch of our Lovewell campus up in Sonora. And there were 60 people at that launch, which is really incredible. We were super excited for that. Yeah, you can clap for that for sure. We get tainted in a big church like this because we're like 60 people. Is that even a church? Do you know that the average size church in North America in the Seventh-day Adventist um, denomination is 53 people? That's the average size, and that includes churches like us and churches like Loma Linda that has 6,000 members. So that number is actually pretty significantly lower than that on any given week. So 60 people is a, is a super great way to start a church. There are 100% video venues, so they even watch the music and sing along with the music that we're doing here. This is why it's so important, the upgrades and things that we're doing for um, the lift campaign, because the better quality that we are able to put out into the world, people are literally planting churches just using the content that we're creating in this room, which is phenomenal. Um, speaking of that, speaking of um, planting churches, um, we have a second pop-up that's happening right now in Sacramento um, in the Folsom area. You're probably too late if you're watching this online and you don't live within like eight minutes of the church. Um, you've probably missed it, but we're just so excited about what they're doing up there. A good friend of mine, Joyce Newmeyer, is preaching there. She's actually our board chair from our Portland campus, and she's preaching in Sacramento. So it's fun to be able to like mix all these amazing people around, which is really great. We are in a series called Adventure, as you know, and um, this is second week. Last week, we talked about the risk of Bethlehem, the risk to you know the, the holy couple as they were going there, just even the travel risk, all that sort of thing. We talked about the risk, and then we talk about the risk that God took on you. Today, we're talking about a different kind of risk in this particular narrative. We're talking about the risk of Rome. As you know, Rome was the occupying nation. And obviously, you can't tell the whole story of Rome. That's a, that's a Western civilization, a world history class. But there are some highlights that fit our story. So let me make sure I can give you some context. First of all, at the time, we're talking about Rome covered about 5 million kilometers, right? It's a massive empire at this point. They, they, they approximate 
and this is a wild approximation, it's a big approximation, that there were between 50 and 90 million inhabitants that came under the rule of the Roman Empire at this time. So let's say 70 million. By the way, that's like 33% of the entire world's population at the time. And I don't do this often, but I'll do a little teaching. Here's, here's, um, here's what it was, right? Massive up from Britannia to Egypt through the Arabian Peninsula. I mean... Um, Everybody here in the red is at this point living under the Pax Romana, which was the Roman peace that basically was organizing society at the time. So if you were a occupied territory, if you were occupied nation, you fell under the Pax Romana. They built roads. They didn't always maintain the roads, but they at least built them. This is why we get that saying, all roads lead to Rome that I said last week. Um, you see Rome right here in the center. This is a massive area of land that Rome had conquered and then occupied. And in fact, they say that there was a golden age of Rome, which was um, Augustus, from Augustus to Marcus Aurelius, um, which if you've seen the movie Gladiator, you know who Marcus Aurelius is. He's the old guy. Um, there were a lot of old guys in that movie, but he was the first old guy. Um, does that clarify it for you? Um, so, so, not a bad time to live in the ancient Middle East, but not a great time if you were an occupied country. Right? We find, kind of picking up our story, our narrative, we see Herod the Great, who was the Roman-appointed king in Judea, and he was known for being a great builder. Now, um, we talked a little bit about him last week when the Magi came, and they said, hey, where's the king? And he's like, I'm right here. And they're like, no, not you, the little one, um, the little baby Jesus king. And he was like, I don't like that. And so we know the story that a couple years later, he actually um, he put into play that they would kill all the young children under, all the young men, the young baby boys under two years old. So, um, but he was known as a great builder. That's, he didn't just, his reign did not just include killing babies. He actually did some other things like, for instance, building the second temple in Jerusalem. The Western Wall, um, today when you go to the, the temple, the Western, the temple obviously isn't there, but the Western Wall still has stones from this particular build as well. And this may be one that you know of a little bit. Masada was his springtime palace. They don't think that he ever actually went there, but he built it on this plateau overlooking the Dead Sea. And it's pretty fascinating. Um, there's a pretty fascinating story. At the end of the first Jewish-Roman War, which was about 73-74 AD, um, there was a mass suicide of the 960 Sakari rebels that were living up there, and they held off the Roman, the Roman legions. They held them off for, I don't know, like 360 days or something, like uh, over a year. They held them off because there's water. There's cisterns over here where you can get water. It's pretty amazing. They'd have, this has actually been lost. It had been lost to antiquity for a lot of years until basically a shepherd kind of walked up the side one time following an animal trail and got to the top and was like, what is this? And then it's a pretty phenomenal place to go see an archaeological excavation. In fact, I believe that this was a pool, right? So can you imagine living there? And then you go down three massive stories and you've got, like got like an infinity pool looking out over in the... They lived all right, right? He also built an ancient fortress that we call the Herodian. 
Um, this is actually outside of Bethlehem. It's very hard to get to right now. Josephus, this historian from the first century, tells us about it. And they think that Herod may have been buried there from some of the archaeological findings that they have. The one that matters the most to me was Caesarea Maritima. It's where I got to spend a lot of my summers growing up. And um, it was the largest artificial harbor that was built into the open sea. And it was said to be one of the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world because there was a massive statue of the Emperor Hadrian that, that stood over the port and ships would have to go underneath his legs to get into Caesarea Maritima. And um, like there's a crusader fortress up there. I literally grew up playing around these lines. It was an amazing place to go. So that's Herod the Great. And this is, um, by the way, he wasn't a great dude. He died in pretty excruciating pain, as we know. But here's what's interesting. He was so concerned that no one would mourn his death that he commanded a large group of very distinguished men to come to Jericho where he was living at the time as he was dying. And he gave the order that they should all be killed at his death so people would mourn him dying. Not a great dude. The good news is, after he died, everyone was like, horrible idea, let's not do that. So they didn't kill those guys. And I think they all felt like, well, thanks for that, let's go back to Jerusalem. Um, so what we can say is that Jesus was born into kind of a tumultuous time, right? There's this massive empire that is covering the whole of the ancient world, which actually, interestingly, probably helped with the spread of the gospel pretty significantly because it was kind of a, not, certainly not homogenous, but it was a world that had been kind of unified in some respects. And to this time, to this place, in the midst of this empire, in the midst of these kings and these emperors, you have Jesus show up, right? And, and I mean, what we see, what's interesting is that there was a lot of revolts going on at the time, right? But they were really actually a little bit, not ancient history, but probably the biggest revolt was the Maccabean revolt from 167 to 160 BC. So this is about 150 years or so before Jesus is born. By the time Jesus shows up, what we see is a pattern of compromise. They weren't fighting the Roman occupation anymore. They were just compromising to it. Give, Caesar, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. That's a statement of compromise, right? Then give to God what is God's. They had just compromised into this oppression that they were in. So is it any wonder that when they were expecting the Messiah, they were expecting Jesus to come to a palace, not a pen? Because they expected Jesus to be born that way. Why not? I mean, why wouldn't God show up in a palace? That would have created much more of a splash than what happened. But see, here's the problem. What they were expecting was not what they got. They were expecting a new David, and what they got was a new Adam. They wanted a savior who would get rid of the Roman oppression, because as humans, all we do is think too small when we think about God. All I need is, you know, they just wanted a savior. They wanted a Messiah who would come, overthrow the Romans, kick them out, and get back to business as usual. And had they gotten a new David, he probably would have done that. But they didn't get a new David, they got a new Adam. Now what do I mean by that? Well, for that, we have to go to Romans. Romans chapter five. As you know, Romans is Paul's pretty significant treatise on theology, salvation, sin, and how it all works. And right in the middle of it, we see Romans five, where he says this, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. 
So this is the first Adam, right? Which is the type for the anti-type, which is Jesus. We say that theologically. So yes, people sinned even before the law was given. But it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. However, still, everyone died. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God, as Adam did. Now Adam is a symbol, a representation, a type of Christ who is yet to come. But then he says, listen, I mean, that's the plan of salvation. But then he says, listen, there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Now, when you read it in this context, it sounds like we're reading a Christmas story because he's talking about the gift that God has given us. You see, we're really lucky to have a new Adam and not a new David. Jesus wasn't incarnated to rule an empire. He was, reincar- he was incarnated, not reincarnated, sorry. He was incarnated to establish a kingdom. Therefore, a new Adam, not a new David. And the result of God's gracious gift, it continues, is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. Friends, this is just grace. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Thanks, I was wondering if you guys were still awake. Listen, I don't care if you amen me. I say good stuff. I say bad stuff. This kind of stuff, you should be amening a lot, right? Because this is universal. This is salvation for everyone involved. This is, this is why we speak of Jesus into the world, because we have been saved by the gracious gift of God that was given to us. Listen, yes, it continues on. Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. This is the point of incarnation. Yeah, clap for that. This is the point of the incarnation. The new Adam, not the new David. Israel was expecting a new David. In that way, they were expecting a revolution, not a resurrection. They were expecting this revolution that would throw off their chains. But the problem with the revolution is that it's temporary. If any of you have seen Napoleon, the new Ridley Scott movie, right, with Joaquin Phoenix, you know a couple things. Number one, the French Revolution didn't last, and the movie felt like it was longer than the French Revolution. (laughs) It was so long. Felt long. Revolutions are temporary. But the truth is, we like the immediate more than we like the eternal. We like this in our lives as well. In fact, we'll give up the eternal for the immediate. You see, what Israel wanted was a return to a monarchism, not an incarnation. And the problem was, they were looking for a new empire regardless of how bad the last one they had went. Let me remind you, we'll jump to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. They just, they're upset, right? So they bring Samuel in, who's a prophet, certainly not a king, because God was king of Israel at the time. But they're like, listen, hey, 
you're now old, which is a great way to start a, a, a meeting. <laughs> hey, Samuel, you're an old dude, and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all those other nations have. It's uncomfortable for Samuel. So Samuel's not happy about this. It says Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance, like you should do. This bothered him, as it bothered any of us. And God says this to Samuel. Hey, do everything they say for you to do, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king anymore. So God actually gives Samuel a larger perspective that it's not a rejection of Samuel's leadership, but it was a rejection of God's sovereignty over Israel. And he says, listen, ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they've, they've abandoned me and they followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. This is just a microcosm of what God had felt for years. So what he's saying is, is that what they want? Yeah. Are you sure that's what they want? Yeah. All right. Give it to them. By the way, when somebody repeats that to you and they say, that's what you want? And you're like, yeah. And they're like, you really want that? They know something you don't. Stop. <laughs> like, just stop and be like, maybe I don't. Say more. Right? This is what they're doing to God. They're like, Samuel, we don't, we don't want God as our king. We don't want God to rule over us and his sovereignty. What we'd like is a person because ultimately they seem to work out better. And God says, really? You really want that? And they're like, yes, we think that would work out much better. And God says, okay. Have you ever gotten what you've asked for? <laughs> Only to find out it was just the worst idea. Well, that's exactly what happens as we know. And he says, listen, God says, listen, do as they ask, but tell them about the way a king will reign over them. Let them have what they want but that's not going to work out so well for them. You see, what they wanted was a plot, not a plan. What's the difference? A plot is something for a place and time. A plan is something that can transcend. Now, we often want a scheme in our lives, a get-rich scheme. We want a, a, a way to do, like, we want something like that. We want a scheme, not a schema. A schema is the way to look at the world and the way you function and act and and. and live in the world. They wanted a king, but they weren't interested in a kingdom. Kings rule, for sure, but kingdoms transcend. By the way, kings don't really rule kingdoms as much as they rule empires. They're looking for an answer to the oppression they were living under. It was a reasonable desire. No one likes to be occupied by another sovereign nation, but they couldn't understand that what they wanted was not what they needed. You see, they wanted a revolution, not a revelation. A revolution is not what they needed. In Jesus, in the incarnation, they did not receive the revolution they were expecting, but a revelation that would sustain and grow and impact the world. It's not a point in history. It's the apex of history. It's all that history runs towards and runs away from. They wanted a king to solve some of their, their national sovereignty problems, and God was offering them a kingdom that transcended their nation, their people, their tribe, their language, and brought all people together. But let's be clear, the incarnation did happen within the Roman Empire. There is a risk of Rome in this story. In fact, the incarnation happened within this context of the culture where Jesus was born. It was particular, by the way. But I always find it fascinating that he didn't revolt against the culture 
right? We don't have Jesus standing up saying, have you seen what the Romans are doing? Like the way they have orgies, the way they eat uncontrollably and then vomit and then eat again. Like he didn't talk about any of that. We never hear Jesus saying anything about that. He never fought against their culture. Rather, he changed the context in which the culture was even found. And in that way, things changed. We could ask the question, how come Jesus didn't come in a time that was less risky? But the problem is there's no such thing as risk versus no risk. Because when would that have been? Today, there's no such thing as risk versus no risk. There's never no risk. There's no such thing. Now, I'm going to use an illustration that the 930 said it was okay to use. Because if it didn't work, I wasn't going to use it at the 1030. And I don't know how you people are, but I'm going to just give some background, and then you get to decide whether it's appropriate or not. So I have an English background. Um, I have two degrees. One is in English. One is in religious studies. Uh, so I like to read. I enjoy literature. And I'm, I'm pretty open to a lot of different literature. So there's this one particular series that I read that I find quite fascinating, and I'm not necessarily endorsing. Are we clear? I know you think I'm going to say Harry Potter. I'm not. Because I'm going to do the adult version, which is Game of Thrones. <laughs> All right? And I, let's not get those weird, like, our pastor shouldn't read Game of Thrones. I have a discerning mind. I know what's real and what's not. <laughs> but he did an amazing thing in that series. What he did was he started the series with assumptions about the world around you. Right? There's actually no magic. And I know magic doesn't exist. Like, let's not get crazy. All right? There's no magic. And then slowly... He changes the context of the world they're living in. He does it almost imperceptibly over five books. And yes, we do want seven books from the series because nobody likes the way the miniseries ended. The only problem is, have you seen him? He doesn't look like he's going to make all the last two books. I worry, like he needs, you know, an apple and a walk. Um, but Sorry, it's inappropriate. I... But what was amazing is that he... He changed the context, the background of the way the world worked in those stories. And by the end, the whole world was very different than it was at the very beginning because he quietly changed the context of the culture he was writing about. And just for the record, when I say I'm in, I may or may not, I may have listened to an audiobook that was 22 hours on the history of Westeros. That's not a real place, just to be clear. Like, we went a thousand years back in the different families involved. It was ridiculous, but I was into it for a little while. What was fascinating, and it's interesting because it's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came in and began to change the context of the culture where he lived. He didn't go fight the culture. See, because the truth is getting involved in a culture war is a fool's errand. It doesn't do us any good. I'm always amazed that Christians are so angry of people doing something who never claim to represent or even acknowledge Christ, and we're mad that they're doing something that offends us. So we fight the culture that they live in that's just natural to them, and we're like, you shouldn't say that. You're taking Christ out of Christmas. You're da 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 And they're like, what are you talking about? We're not playing the same game. You guys are playing checkers. We're playing chess, and you keep thinking we should be moving the pieces the same way you do. We don't, and so we waste a lot of time as Christians fighting the culture war, saying, say this, say that, don't do this, don't do that, when really what we should be doing is changing the context that the whole culture is found in. 
so that the, the cultural expressions of the world that we live in will line up with make, what makes sense in the world. We should change the context of the culture so much that when something doesn't make sense within the culture, it becomes anathema to everyone, not just us because we have a particular worldview. And by the way, doing that, credibly risky. The countercultural call of the incarnation is to be love in the midst of risk. It's not about abating risk. Rather, it's about gambling on those same people that Jesus came down for. It is about making sure that we are loving those that Jesus loved. It is more about changing the context of the culture than changing the culture itself. You know why? Because one is eternal and one is temporary. If you don't believe me, go back and look at your high school yearbook and see what you were wearing. <laughs> that is a cultural expression of where you were in the world, right? I graduated high school in 1990 and I looked pretty good. I thought, and then my children look at my yearbook, and they're like, <laughs> why would you wear that? And I'm like, <laughs> have you seen you right now? And they're like, no, this looks good. I'm like, no, that looked good. This looks ridiculous. Because we're all products of our culture. So stop being products of the particular and become a product of the eternal. Amen. To be involved in a culture war is wasted Time, Christians. Our call is to incarnate love into the context of the culture, and therefore we will see the culture change at its core. You think too small. You think too temporary. You think in revolutions, not in revelations. You're looking for palaces, but truth is found in a pen. So the question I have for you today is what do we incarnate into our Rome, our risky places where things are happening that we don't think should be happening and they shouldn't, they shouldn't be like that. Well, it's not you running in and telling it you shouldn't be like that or not going to change it. You loving from a deeper place, from a more eternal place is the only thing that's going to change anyone's behavior or change any culture. The particularity of the incarnation is what makes it powerful. Jesus came to Rome, and you understand that 300 years later, Rome was Christian. You know this, the particular speaks to the eternal when it speaks well. Every good book that you've read is a particular story that tells eternal truths. Every good joke you've heard is a particular story that tells of an eternal truth. Every good song that you love is a particular story that tells an eternal truth. How are you incarnating specifically for the context in your world that is showing the world eternal truth? Listen, knowing this, you should also know that what you incarnate will put you at risk. But that risk is worth it for those people that lives will be changed. Let me give you an example. Yesterday, I had the incredible opportunity to go up to Victorville and be part of a ribbon cutting for a new homeless wellness campus that our clinic, Simba Clinic, is deeply a part of up there. 
So it's wraparound services, 170 beds, small, small houses, kind of dormitory, but individual living pods for the underserved in their community. And Simba Center has gone in to do these wraparound medical services. It's incredible. In fact, the, the director of Simba Center was sitting right there. He, they work in our clinic every single week when they're here. They're doing an amazing work up in Victorville. They were honored for the work that they are doing. This place is going to transform the lives of unhoused people in the Victorville area. Listen, they thought of everything. Every service you could need is there, whether it's job services or medical or mental health. Like it's all there wrapped up into this one campus. Places to play, places to run, pickleball, basketball. They, they even thought about everything so much that these people needed that they actually have a dog run in the back. They have a whole kennel that people can put their animals and you can keep your animal in your little pod if you want to with collapsible kennels. The reason why they did that is they know that when you're homeless, that can companion that you have is your family and you will not get their services if, if your family can't come with you. So they took care of these people's dogs and cats. This is what I'm talking about. This is what it means to produce something particular that speaks to the eternal, to change the culture and context. It's super easy for us to say, oh, there's so many homeless around. Well, da, 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 they should this, they're, they're lazy, they're, whatever. You can say whatever you want. These people said, no, we're gonna change the context in which these people find themselves. They won't be homeless anymore because this 80 by 30 little pod that they have is gonna be where they live. Not 80 by 30, 80 square foot. That makes more sense. It's small, but it's better than the wash that they slept in last night. I'm so grateful for what Simba Center is doing. I'm so grateful we get to partner with them. I, I sit on their board and it's just such an honor. What you incarnate will put you at risk, but they are worth it. Just like you were worth it to God. And at this Christmas season, we think about we think about Jesus, and I think there's times we think, you know, why did they miss it? Why did people miss who Jesus was? It's crazy. Their expectations were different. But you know what lasts? What's last is something that was said in Isaiah. Right? These words written prior to the coming of Jesus. And it means that God had been pondering his incarnation and what he would bring to Rome for a really long time. What the incarnation would mean to us. And he was looking for just the right context into, to break into the world. Isaiah 9, 6 says this, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. And I love this next phrase, the government will rest upon his shoulders. Do you know what that means? It means that this person will be so foundational that the government and all its people, they're just gonna rest on his shoulders. That's how big and important this person is gonna be. And he will be called. Now, had they gotten the new David they were looking for, he would have been called king of the Jews. He would have been called, you know, king of Israel, emperor maybe. And that would have been great, good history. But Isaiah foreshadowed and said, actually, he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I talked about Herod the Great. 
Herod the Great was an emperor from here to here. I don't get to say that about Jesus. I don't say, hey, he came into the world and he was king of Israel from here to here. What I do is I come to church and I worship a living God who changed the context of the culture in which we live. His name had to be something transcendent, not limited like king of Israel, but something far greater. Something particular enough, a little baby, to write songs about, but eternal enough to write even more. So what songs will they sing about you and the way that you've changed the context of the culture that you're around, whether it's in your workplace and you change the context of, your cult, of the workplace culture that you live, or you change the context of the family culture where your kids will grow up, or you change the context of your friend group or your church. In what way will you incarnate those eternal principles that you value and it changed your life into the Rome where you're called to incarnate. Pray with me. Lord, you've given us such a big task. Man, it's unreasonable. We're supposed to change the context of the world? <laughs> but I guess we have a good model in you. Thank you for being the next Adam, not the new David. Thank you for bringing a revelation that sustains, not a revolution that can be killed. Thank you for coming to a pen, not a palace, so we can know and understand who you are. And Lord, thank you for establishing a kingdom that transcends, not an empire that we talk about way back when. And Lord, may we be part of your incarnation today. In your name I pray. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.